Hi everyone and welcome back to BFR Radio. I'm your host Chris Cavillio. Now firstly I must apologize. I haven't had an episode in the last two months and look I've been a little bit busy with my own work but also I've got some exciting projects happening within my own blood flow restriction business. Is in two weeks time I am going to host a workshop down in Sydney. So if anyone's in Sydney and wants to come to my workshop, it's going to be on a Saturday afternoon. Um, You can get your tickets through Eventbrite and I'll put some links up through this episode and also my website. Come along. It's going to be a really great workshop to keep some really great content in the world of BFR going. This is actually an episode that Jared and I recorded recently for our other podcast, Snippet Sports Science. It's still BFR related. Where I think this fits really well into BFR is around using it on cardio type equipment. What I typically find is the pressure that I use or set for strength exercises is a little bit too high for stationary exercise. And I always drop it a little bit. And this article perhaps explains a little bit more reasoning as to why it's beneficial to drop the pressure a little bit from your normal pre-setting of pressures that you might do in the strength sessions. Anyway, on to the episode. It's just going to be this episode by itself. There's no going to be how you do BFR. Sit back and enjoy it. Once again, if you're in Sydney in two weeks time on Saturday 13th of October, I'm going to be there. Spread the word. If you know someone who might be interested, I'd really appreciate if you're able to share it with them. Here's the episode. This is from Snippet Sports Science, which I actually have to acknowledge our sponsors on that podcast, EliteForm.com. If you're into velocity-based training, make sure you give them a little look up. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's going to give some good practical applications for those who use BFR with aerobic stationary-based type work. Enjoy. Finally, we're back together. I'm Chris Cavillio, and I've got Jared online. How are you, mate? Pretty well. How are you doing, Chris? Yeah, very well. So we've been uh, doing some solo sessions recently. Jared's in the middle of his PhD, so he's thick into data analysis and writing. And and firstly, how's that going at the moment? Exhausting, as uh, anyone who's done a PhD probably expects, uh, yourself included. Yeah, totally understand. Anyway, so we're trying a new format today, a slightly different audio type setup. So hopefully... The audio is quite good here, and once again, we're back on track for our um, group sessions here. So, And today's first one that we're going to dig into is around blood flow restriction. It's actually called Effects of Different Percentages of Blood Flow Restriction on Energy Expenditure, and this is out of Brazil from Pfeiffer et al. So just to start with, Jared, do you want to just kick us a little bit off about the introduction around this paper in particular? Yeah, most of what the researchers speak about is they talk about the energy expenditure that people are interested in achieving from exercise. And they do talk about here mostly from people with chronic diseases or obesity, which I feel like they don't really get into that much into the study, in my personal opinion, because they are using healthy, good BMI body weight men. But it is overall a good rationale for a study that a lot of us were we are exercising as part of that energy expenditure And they go on to further explain that a lot of these people who would be interested in energy expenditure from exercise, a lot of them aren't able to participate in the high intensity exercise that most people would do for energy expenditure. And so if we can find a way where there's a low intensity exercise with applying additional stimulus, such as from blood flow restriction, then that might be a beneficial alternative for them. Furthermore, because of the specific activation that blood flow restriction training can have, 
there could be additional benefits from the training. As other people have seen with the activation of type 2 muscle fibers and signaling, such as for target rapamycin, there could be additional benefits from the blood flow restriction training. Yeah, and, and look, potentially there also that if they did use obese participants in the study, they have actually may have been precluded from the study due to contraindications around it. Right, exactly. Whenever you try and first look into studies for things like this, you do need to start with a healthy population before you're then able to see if it's safe and effective for a less healthy population. Anyway, just around the study in relation to aerobic exercise, there's actually been a, a fair bit of evidence around low-load BFR training and aerobic exercise, and that's providing significant physiological improvements such as a fast increase in aerobic capacity in active men, improvement in energy expenditure in VO2 in men and women. And that's also been in walking and both uh, cycling as well. And we've actually reviewed a paper and, and did a little bit of that study ourselves. And although quite tough at the time, it was quite a good little um, cycle session, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And that's another thing that they, probably their second biggest outcome measure they get into here is that subjective perceived discomfort. So a lot of people have previously looked at subjective ratings of subjective perceived exertion. A lot of what other people have looked at are those subjective ratings of exertion. But we know it's a little bit different with the blood flow restriction that all the time you don't feel exactly exerted. It doesn't exactly feel like a lot of effort because you're not always moving a lot of load at those low intensity blood flow restriction training. But there is a different characteristic to it that I know other people have tried to look at with uh, ratings of pain or uh, you, the burn sensation, you know, but what these researchers have done is they've just looked at it as a rating of perceived discomfort. Actually, one little point on that here. I think I read in the paper, they start off with the acronym PSD, Perceived Subjective Discomfort, and then they changed it to SPD. Yeah, um, yeah but there, or, there's, or a, there's a few, There's a so these are Brazilian researchers, right? And obviously their English is excellent. They're publishing in what is the International Journal of Sports Medicine. Obviously, their English is good, but you know, when people who are English second language are writing something, sometimes there's some interesting little English bits, like a, the, one of the ones, the first one I saw was a, instead of a hypertrophy, they just call it trophy. Like yeah. for growth yeah. instead of, <laughs> instead of hypertrophy. That, it's amazing that they've changed the acronym halfway through the study, but it's actually got through the review process. Anyway, so that, that's a really nice introduction to the idea behind this study in respect to the experimental approach to the problem. What they did here is each of the subjects performed four experimental conditions without BFR and at 50, 80, and 100% of BFR according to the pressures that were calculated over four sessions with one week of rest between each session. The subjects, they chose 24 young, healthy men, as Jared said earlier, Perhaps the one thing that they had to do to ensure that they had no contraindications around um, the subjects that they had in the study. For the measurement of the BFR in the lower limb, the subjects initially rested for 10 minutes in the dorsal decubitus position on a stretcher, and then the cuffs were placed on the most proximal parts of the right and left thighs. Now, this position here is they're basically laying down. I actually tried to Google it. And I still couldn't find it. Do you know what that position actually it, is? It, it's just uh, supine. It's just supine. I don't. That's another one of the strange little English things. I don't know why they've written a dorsal decubitus there, but um, but yeah, it's it's supine. So they've they've got them lying on their backs the way that you and I would have them. 
Yeah. The cuffs that they used were 18 centimetres wide, so perhaps a little bit wider than we're normally used. So the ones that we traditionally use would be probably about 10 centimetres wide. And they're manually inflated until the blood flow was completely restricted. So complete arterial occlusion. From this point here, they could obviously then calculate the different percentage pressures according to no occlusion, 50, 80, and then 100% of the BFR. With respect to the treadmill test, what they did here is they obtained a maximum velocity in order to subsequently establish the subject's 40% of maximum aerobic velocity. This value was established because a pre-study provided evidence that above the 40%, the subjects began to run. So they obviously chose that as the cutoff point. In the test, what happened here is the subject started walking at 3 kilometers hour with the treadmill at 1% incline. After each minute, the speed was increased by one kilometer per hour until the subject reached the point of total exhaustion. The point of total exhaustion was considered to be the volatile fatigue of each subject. And there, I think they mean volitional fatigue as well. That was another one that jumped out at me a little bit. Volatile? I don't think that's quite right. I think they mean volitional. <laughs> that's a good point as well. Volatile, that's, um, that's quite a strong word. And so just looking at the characteristics of the participants from the testing that Chris just went through, we can see that on average, these were young men. They were about 24 years old with a body mass index of about 25. So certainly not obese. And then when I saw their maximum speed here in kilometers per hour of just 14.2 kilometers per hour, I thought that that was a bit slow, to be honest, as a, as a maximum speed. But of course, they mean the maximum speed within the Prado protocol that Chris just went through. So it was the maximum speed at the end of uh, it was about a 14-minute test, I believe, on average, most of them got through. So it was the fastest they were going after about 14 minutes of testing for that maximum speed. The other point there was the, just the BFR pressures, the, the total on the left and the right. And that was around 135 mils of mercury, uh, a little bit more on the left than the right. Obviously, with a wider cuff, uh, we'd expect those pressures to be lower. So traditionally around... 10 centimeter cuff, you would think an average male will be anywhere between 160 to 180, depending obviously on the size of their leg circumference. Um, so this probably sits pretty well. And I'd say something like 135 would be, with a wider cuff, would, would be a little bit more tolerable for the subject. Right. And these total occlusion pressures were observed with the vascular doppler after a considerable period of rest and lying supine or in that uh, dorsal decubitus position if you prefer. And, uh, and so this would be about the lowest blood pressure that any of these athletes would ever have. And then obviously when you're standing and particularly when you're walking or performing exercise, your blood pressure is higher. So although it's cold, the 100% blood flow restriction level, you're not actually going to be at 100% restriction while you're walking because your blood pressure is going to be considerably higher. I know, uh, I don't know about walking, but I, I do know that in squatting, I've seen guys get up to as high as like 400 millimeters mercury while they're squatting. Obviously, that's heavy squats. So that's about as high as human blood pressure gets. But it's certainly not going to be 100% occlusion while they're walking. That's probably a good point because I think people would listen to this and go, oh, 100% total occlusion. It's dangerous. You can't do it. Yes. And that's a really relevant point. Actually, wasn't brought up in the discussion at all and, and perhaps may have been glossed over through, they just referenced a paper in the procedures. Right. And they're just using those percents of blood flow restriction. They're not using the long keys formula that Chris and I prefer. On to the training protocol. There was four conditions, as I said earlier, zero, 50%, 80, and 100% of BFR. 
And these were set in order to determine the functional form between zero, medium, high, and total restriction intensity of energy expenditure. As mentioned earlier, the cuffs were put in the proximal region of the thigh, and that's the upper section of the thigh, obviously. And then they walked for five two-minute bouts on an electric treadmill at a speed corresponding to 40% of their personal maximal speeds in kilometers per hour. So they'd walk for two minutes, would have one minute off of rest between each bout. Therefore, the total testing time, as mentioned earlier, was 14 minutes using the modified protocol. BFR was maintained at a constant level during the exercise and was monitored by means of a manometer coupled to the cuffs. And immediately after exercise, the cuffs were deflated so that the blood flow returned to normal. Yeah, I wasn't sure from reading that protocol, Chris, if uh, when they say that the cuffs were deflated so that the blood flow returned to normal immediately after exercise, are they saying that after each bout? So do you think that the cuffs remain inflated for the entire duration of the exercise? Was this continuous or intermittent? Not totally clear, to be honest. I interpret this to be intermittent. See, I interpreted it to be continuous, that it depends how you define the exercise. Was the exercise the actual, the individual two-minute bouts, or was the exercise all of the exercise that was happening? Yeah, I, I toed and froed for a little bit, and yeah. I just thought, well, if exercise is exercise and rest is rest. Right, right. Maybe we should contact the authors. We should. The, uh, <laughs> the the energy expenditure, this was measured by kilocals uh, and was consumed during the 14 minutes of exercise, and this was used using a gas analyzer. It was placed on the subjects as recommended by the device manual. It was a COSMED, and it was indicated the consumption of VO2 liters per minute. The perceptions of discomfort, so at the end of the, each training session, immediately after removal of the mask for the gas analyzer, the subjects were asked to assess the experienced discomfort during the exercise using a verbal rating scale adapted to this study. And they used the following values, 7, very, very light, 9, very light, 11, reasonably light, 13, a little heavy, 15, heavy, 17, very heavy, and 19, very, very heavy. So here, a scale of between 7 and 19. And that was really the bulk of the study. Cuffs on, on the treadmill, two minutes on, one minute off, making sure that they're collecting their energy expenditure during it using a gas analyzer, and at the end of it, getting those perceptions of discomfort from the session of the BFR. Right, and then pretty straightforward statistical analysis because uh, they've got a multi-condition study here. They did repeat measures analysis of variance with the appropriate normality and sphericity test before, then followed up with post hoc pairwise comparisons and finally getting some at a squared effect sizes so that we can look at some of the size of the differences between the different levels of blood flow restriction. So overall, they found that there were no significant differences between the resting metabolic rate and the four blood flow restriction levels. However, there was a significant effect of blood flow restriction with an at a squared value of 0.7 on energy expenditure. They saw that the energy expenditure increased about near, nearly 20%, actually 18.7%. So pretty substantial increase in the energy expenditure. And then similarly with the discomfort, they found that there was a significant effect of the blood flow restriction on discomfort with an eta squared value of 0.9. So actually even a larger effect on discomfort than energy expenditure. So you're going you're gonna to be able to expend a bit more energy, but you're going to pay for it with discomfort. Yeah, just back to the energy expenditure, as you said, increased by around 20%. And this is actually between the zero and the 50% BFR condition. Yes. Whereas it was only about 6% between the 50 and the 80% and just over 1% between the 80 and the 100%. Uh, yes, essentially no difference. 
Yeah, so that the major energy expenditure occurs between that zero and 50% BFR condition. So I think that's really important to highlight between those four different conditions. Yeah, yeah. So overall, BFR is having a substantial effect on energy expenditure, but you get most of that effect at 50%. A little bit more going up to 80%, but essentially no additional energy expenditure from 80 to 100%. Although the level of discomfort does increase with every level of blood flow restriction. Therefore, rather than having to put up with the pain, you reduce the BFR occlusion pressure by a little bit. You get through the session and depending on the level of the athlete, they're probably more likely to complete it and repeat it if you're going to be doing it longitudinally. Yeah. So that that 50% level, uh, they had, was it 135 millimeters mercury for uh, for the 100%? So if they're at 50%, that means that they're at about you know 75 millimeters mercury with 14-inch cuffs. What do you think of training at 75 millimeters mercury with 14 inch cuffs chris seems like that would be pretty that would be real easy for us i think that would be quite easy yeah definitely and i do know when i train athletes all and they're doing stationary based activities i'll actually get them to to decrease their pressure based upon the lenecki equation at 50% arterial occlusion, I'll get them actually drop it by about 20 mils of mercury. What that equates to as a percentage, I'm unsure. However, I do know that I'll drop it down a bit because it actually, it is quite painful to stay at really high pressures. Right. And I think it's an important note that these would be blood flow restriction naive training subjects because I think that perception of discomfort is massively different when you're first doing blood flow restriction training and if you've done it for a year, you know, after after a year or even maybe three months, less than that, you know, and the blood flow restriction, it feels good, actually. It doesn't, I would describe it as more comfortable than not using it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you just, uh, you feel supported when you, when you do it and it gives you a, a nice warm, firm sort of sensation. I don't know if that explains it very well. Oh, I think that explains it perfectly. That's, that's a lot of the comments other athletes have as well. Um, I think that's really spot on. A couple of little points just want to discuss with Jared and, and highlight is some ideas or concepts in their discussion. And, and like, for example, one of their hypothesis that explained around the increase in energy expenditure in aerobic exercise combined with BFR is that they thought that oxygen reduction and intramuscular metabolic accumulation occurs and this causes a greater recruitment of group three and four afferent neurons and therefore promoted increased recruitment of type two muscle fibers and jared brought up a really point and i'm just going to let you take over about your point about this yeah i don't want to be too critical but i don't think it really explains energy expenditure it's it's a reasonably correct mechanism but it looks kind of like something that, that I've, I've seen in a lot of other research. It's quite well agreed upon. And so if you have a background in muscle physiology, you can understand how activating your type 2 muscle fibers will have greater energy expenditure, but you do need that background because I don't think most people are really aware that with your type 2 muscle fibers, you're predominantly using anaerobic glycolysis rather than in the type 1 muscle fibers, you're going to be using predominantly oxidative phosphorylation. And your anaerobic glycolysis is much less efficient than oxidative phosphorylation. And so it's going to be using a lot more energy to be doing that. And it sounds like a bad thing, but if you think about it a bit, you're essentially getting free exercise by doing that. So you're doing essentially the same work, very near level of exertion, maybe a bit more discomfort for BFR naive participants. But at the end of the day, you're doing basically the same movements, 
over the same period of time and being able to have more energy expenditure for it. And then similarly, discussing the type 3 and 4 afferent neurons, they do have later in their discussion that the increase in discomfort could be explained by the increase in blood lactate and accumulation of intramuscular metabolites, which is which is all well, fair and good. But I'm, I'm actually not sure if lactate activates uh, type 3 and 4 afferent neurons, so which would be causing pain and discomfort. So the type 3 and 4 afferents do have free nerve endings, so they pretty much respond to just about anything. Almost there's tons of chemical signals that do activate your type 3 and 4 afferents. So it's possible that lactate is doing that. But I would think it would be much more apparent that the concentration of hydrogen ions would be one of the things most responsible for that feeling of discomfort. I believe that's largely responsible for the sensation of the burn that you particularly get from, uh, well, any heavy exercise, but particularly blood flow restriction training. It has a, a very strong particular burn sensation to it. And I think that would primarily be to the accumulation of hydrogen ions, a more acidic environment. I totally agree there. And as we spoke a little bit offline, it's kind of like they've just taken a couple of good sentences, whacked it in the paper there and used that as one of their hypotheses, which they didn't actually measure anything to back that up or to to support that. And just thinking about as you're talking about some of this stuff could have been really easy to measure and would have been interesting to add into the paper as well. That's my two cents worth. However, irrespective of that, I think what the outcome here is, is that or what I like about it is, is that when you start looking at pressures for aerobic or longer duration aerobic work, do we need to be going to those higher pressures? And I think that's a continual conversation around the use of BFR. How much do we truly need? And potentially in the case of energy expenditure and what we're trying to get out in those type of sessions, that you can actually lower the pressure, especially in a training group that may not be well-versed in the world of BFR. Your thoughts there, Jared? Well, yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I do think that overall, this is an excellent, exceptional study. I do think it is it is very well done. Um, having the uh, 24 participants doing four different conditions, fairly demanding, uh, five weeks doing this study with the pre-testing originally and, and all of that, that it was, it was quite a bit of work that, that they did go to. I mean, always we want to see more measures, right? But at the end of the day, I'd, well, I would consider this a, a very good study and they've, and they've made an excellent contribution. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for your time, Jared. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Good to have you back. And thanks, listeners, for joining us. And also, once again, thanks to EliteForm.com. And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Cavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump. (laughs) 